I'd like you to notice the scripture, Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28. Jesus said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, the work of God corresponds or matches his identity. If you know who he is, you'll know what he does. I know that it is God's will to heal for Exodus chapter 15 and verse 26 says, I am the Lord, your healer. I know he guides and provides because Psalm 23 verse 1 says, the Lord is my shepherd. I know he protects from danger and sustains me in trouble because Psalm 28 verse 7 says, the Lord is my strength and my shield. And he will never fail because Psalm 18 verse 2 says, the Lord is my rock. Praise the Lord. Now it's interesting there's a scripture in the New Testament, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. The apostle Paul said, For I know whom I have believed. Many Christians know what they believe in, but Paul knew who he believed in. Hmm. You see, to know him is to love him. To know him is to trust him. I, I, I trust him because he's trustworthy. I love him because he first loved me. And to know him better is to trust him and love him more. And then again in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, the apostle Paul stated his ambition in life, the thing that drove him, his primary objective that I may know him. That seems a strange thing for Paul to say. I thought he already knew the Lord. The Amplified Bible says this, that I may progressively become more deeply and intimately acquainted with him, perceiving and recognizing and understanding the wonders of his person more strongly and clearly. There will never be a time when you know him enough. You know, some people, the more you get to know them, the less interesting they become. Sometimes when, well, I don't know if you're looking at me, sister, but I'm just saying that in general. Sometimes when you see people up close, you're a little disappointed. You know, when you see the person behind the persona, it can be a letdown. But that's never the case with the Lord. And if you want to experience the fullness of his power, you must know and understand the wonders of his person. Hallelujah. I'm not singing just because God can do something for me. I'm not just praying because I hope to get something from heaven. I praise him because of who he is. If your heart doesn't sing, you haven't seen him lately. Amen. Hallelujah. However, know this. 
that God is not known by human discovery, but by divine revelation. He shows himself, he makes himself known to us by his spirit and through the word. God is everything the word says he is. And he can do everything the word says he can do. And so we see from scripture who God is. And that tells us what he wants to do in our lives. He is a God of restoration and recovery. We talked about that over the last two weeks. And I want to mention this one point today. He is also a God of rest. He is a God of rest. So in Matthew eleven twenty-eight, 28, our text, Jesus said, I give rest to those who come to me. So if you have no rest, you haven't come to him yet. Now, what kind of rest would that be? What kind of rest does he give? Is it physical, bodily rest? No. If you're tired, take a nap. Not now, but when you go home, take a nap. That's something you can do without Jesus. Sinners do that. No, he is speaking to hearts that are weighed down with guilt and the spirits of men that are struggling to find solace. There's a scripture in Isaiah that addresses this. In chapter 57, verse 20 and 21, but the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. So it's interesting, the ocean is never still. Day and night, around the clock, 24-7, 365 days a year, its waves come crashing along the shoreline. And I grew up near the ocean. And I've, I've been swimming in the ocean, you know, all the time, you know. And many a time, a wave has pounded my head down into the sand. And when I tried to stand up, another one rolled me. And then as I endeavored to make my way back to the shore, another one pounded me. The, wa- the, way, the waters never stop. And sometimes it can get kind of rough. My wife and my family uh, and I, we went to one place and I was in the water and I was just you know, trying to catch the waves and ride them into the shore, you know, back, back to, the, to our towel on the beach. And, and, and a big wave kind of pulled me up and it drove me toward this older woman who was in the water just wading up to her waist. And I tried to navigate around her, but that, that wave just pounded me on top of her. And I rode that poor woman to the beach like a surfboard. I was right on top of her the whole way. And I was so embarrassed. I was so embarrassed. And when we got to the, got to the shoreline, I, I apologized. But thankfully, she didn't seem to mind. You know, she, I think she rather enjoyed it. But I don't know, you know. <laughs> I I can't speak to that. (laughs) But, (laughs) forgive me, but the point is the sea never takes a break. And apart from Christ, 
there is never even one moment of relief from that inner turmoil because of sin. In many a man, many that you know and love, there is a category five hurricane roaring within him. And if you could see what was going on inside of a man's heart, you'd understand why he does the things that he does. It's because of guilt, which is very real. And you can't medicate guilt away. You cannot drown it in drink. You can't talk yourself out of it. And you can't ignore it. St. Augustine was an early believer, and he said this, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. How true. Our hearts are restless until they find rest in him. I'm sure that's the testimony of many who are here today. Oh, more than 500 years ago, there was a young man from Germany who was studying in the university to become a lawyer and riding a horse through the forest, he got caught in a violent thunderstorm. And as a bolt of lightning struck right at his feet, he, he vowed to God that if he survived that storm, he would become a monk. And true to his word, he resigned from his studies to the bewilderment of his friends and to the consternation of his father. And he became an Augustinian monk. And there in the monastery, Martin Luther threw himself into religious practices with long prayers and frequent fastings and continually confessing his sins to the priest, which is not scriptural, but that's nonetheless what he did. Even to the point of taking long pilgrimages. He traveled to Rome believing that if he touched certain relics and, and, and walked certain steps, that he would find peace and rest in his heart. But he found no relief. At one point, he even resorted to flaying himself with the whip to no avail. His religious superiors in the monastery advised him to immerse himself in biblical studies. They said this only because they thought that would distract him enough to get his mind off his problems. So he got three degrees, eventually got a doctorate in theology, and, and he was given a position teaching in a university. But still his heart was restless. He was a man that was driven because he had this haunting awareness that he's condemned that he could not stand before God. And then one day, he read from Romans chapter 1, verse 17, the righteous shall live by faith. He said, at that moment, it was as if the very gates of heaven opened to him, and he suddenly saw it.
We are made right with God by faith in Christ and faith alone. Hallelujah. He began to preach this everywhere. And of course, the rest is, the rest is history. Hallelujah. So when Jesus says, come to me, he doesn't just mean walk up to me, approach me, because lots of people did. The Pharisees, you know, the religious rulers, you know, enemies of God. He really means believe in me and I will give you rest. But you see, some people, they have come to church, but they've never come to Christ. Hmm? Uh, and some have faith in religious traditions, but not God's truth. They believe their denomination will save them. They think their church membership or baptismal certificate is their ticket to heaven, but nothing could be further from the truth. Only in Christ is the heart content. I'm not saying that because I'm a pastor. I'm not saying that because it's Sunday morning. I'm saying that because I have found it to be true. Am I alone today, or is there anyone else that can vouchsafe that and say, that's my testimony as well? He calmed the storm with his words. And he can still the raging turmoil in your spirit as well. In Romans chapter 5, verse 1, we read these words. Since we have been justified or made righteous by faith, we have peace with God. We've placed our trust in Christ alone, not in ourselves and not in others, but in Christ alone. So now we stand before God forgiven and uncondemned. We are restored, reconciled, and we have something, something beautiful, something priceless, something that's so amazing, it's beyond your comprehension. We have peace with God. We have peace with God. So Jesus said, Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, I will give you rest. Another way of expressing that is come to me and I will give you something human effort cannot obtain. Peace with God. Peace with God. Ooh. Now, the New Testament was written in the Greek language, and there are various you know, resources that anybody can obtain to learn more about that. But one well-known is a Greek dictionary, Vines Expository Dictionary. And in that book, it defines the Greek word for peace this way, are a harmonious relationship and friendliness a harmonious relationship and friendliness. So here's the thing. I think a lot of uh, spirit-filled Christians will be quick to say, oh, I don't have a religion. I have a relationship. Okay, amen. But there are many kinds of relationships. Which one do you have? Not all relationships are the same. Are you out there today? Some are terse and difficult. 
like preaching to people over in this section. I don't know. But some, some, are, some, some are difficult. Some relationships are fragile and awkward. Hmm? Do you know what I'm talking about? Are you, are you, are you, are you here? I, I'm not speaking to the back wall. Are you, are you here today? Does anybody have an awkward or difficult relationship in your life? If it's the person sitting next to you, don't wave at me. Just kind of go like, just, I'll know. Amen. If you, how many of you have difficult people in your life? Huh? The world is full of difficult people, right? If you didn't raise your hand, guess what? It's you. Amen. Some relationships are distant and disengaged. But this verse is telling me something. Our connection with God is warm and close. He doesn't see you as an enemy or even a competitor. He's certainly not jealous because of your success. He looks at you through the eyes of love. He wants what is best for you even more than you want it for yourself. I don't feel, and I'm not thinking of anybody in particular, but I don't feel completely comfortable with some people. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I don't feel completely at ease with some people. You know, it may be diplomatic, it may be cordial, but it's not warm. It's not inviting. It's not welcoming. But there's something reassuring. There's something safe. There's something familiar about being with a close friend. And what I'm saying is we should not merely enter into God's presence. We should be comfortable there. There should be something in your heart that's telling you, this is where you belong. What you're tasting now is what it's going to be for you throughout eternity. Hallelujah. So God doesn't want to be treated like a stranger in our life. Now, it's interesting the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Romans in the Greek language, but he himself was not a Greek. He was a Jew. And so he's using Greek words, but I think I could say this, but he thinks like a Jew. In fact, people who are scholars in Greek say his, his Greek is very Jewish. And I think even in English you can, you can tell that. So it might be interesting to know what the Hebrew word for peace is. And of course, I'm sure you know, that's the word shalom. Shalom. And this word carries the idea of wellness and wholeness. So I think the thought is that the peace of God does not mask over our pain. It heals us. It makes us well. And when we're well, the pain leaves. Praise the Lord. Amen. Glory to God. So peace with God produces the peace of God in our lives. When we are right with God, he then begins 
the long process of making everything else right in our lives. Amen. I'll say that again. When we're right with God through faith in Christ, then he begins the process, a journey of setting everything else in order and making everything else right in our lives. In other words, his rest spreads. It spreads to the very frontiers of our existence. God said in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 1 concerning David, the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. God can not only quiet the voices of doubt within you, he can silence the dissenting voices around you. Come on, are you out there today? He can not only quiet that voice of self-condemnation on the inside, he can shut the mouth of the adversary. Hallelujah. The Bible says in Isaiah 54, verse 17, and I'll read this from the New International Reader's Version, but no weapon that is used against you will succeed. People might bring charges against you, but you will prove that they are wrong. Now notice this. These are the things I do for my servants. I make everything right for them, announces the Lord. Is anybody out there today? I make everything right for them. Why? Because they're right with me. Glory to God. Now, folks, Jesus never did anything wrong. He never failed. He was not only sinless, he was perfect. And yet the world hated him. If they hated him, know for a fact that they will despise those who follow him. In other words, if you are living for God, not everybody will applaud. If you are determined to follow Christ, not everybody is going to be happy about that. The devil and the devil's kids will have a headache. Amen. But don't be discouraged. Again, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 14 says this. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Kind of a muted response to that one, but it's true. I said, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, when he says, for the name of Christ, he means simply because of Christ. Because you have given your heart to Christ. Now, see? Now, often the people who will harass you will claim it's not because you're a Christian. Oh, no, no, oh, no, 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 not because of that. But they're lying. They're lying through their teeth. You see, the light that is in you irritates the darkness that's in them. Hallelujah. The Holy Ghost that's in you riles up the demon that's in them, and they don't like it. They don't even know why they don't like it. Are you out there today? But Peter said, you're blessed. You're blessed. Why? Because the Spirit 
of glory rests on you. There is a blessing, there is a blessing that you can only receive by enduring persecution. And if you've been there, you don't mind people coming against you. You don't mind. Go ahead, devil. Take your best shot. No weapon formed against me will prosper. Amen. The spirit of glory will rest upon you. So the God of rest will rest on you. You might think I'm mixing words, but that word rest in 1 Peter, it's the same word Jesus used in Matthew 11. Hallelujah. Amen. Let me change gears for a second. In the Old Testament, while Moses was on Mount Sinai, the children of Israel sinned. They began worshiping a golden calf, an object they had made with their own hands. It's one thing to sin in secret. I mean, that, that's bad enough. But it's quite another thing to do it in the very presence of God. That's unthinkable. I mean, the mountain is on fire, folks, with the glory. The earth is quaking. The sound of a trumpet is blasting. A voice is called out from the mountain, and they are witnesses to it. I mean, when you sin in a situation like that, you're really saying, I defy you. And the Lord was furious. See, and it's interesting, he refused to go with Israel any further. He said, he said to Moses, I'll send an angel to lead you into the promised land, but I myself will not go among you anymore because you are stiff-necked people. It means you're stubborn, stubborn people, see? But that's not the end of the story. Moses did something very interesting. He constructed a special tent, a tent of meeting. It's not the tabernacle. That hasn't happened yet. Moses hadn't received the instructions on how to build that tabernacle. This is something else. And he took that tent and he pitched it far outside the camp. Why? Wouldn't it be more convenient to be right there in the middle of the camp? Moses knew that sometimes you need to put some distance between you and ungodly people. Moses knew that sometimes you need to be in a place away from all of the clamor and the noise and the distractions of this world to get alone with God. Hallelujah. And there... In that tent of meeting, Exodus 33, verse 11 says <clears throat> an amazing thing. The Lord spoke to him. Well, that's, that's great, but the Lord spoke to him face to face. Face to face. As a man speaks with his friend. Hallelujah. And Moses said in verse 13, chapter 33, verse 13, he said, 
you say, God, you, you say you know me by name. You've said that I have found favor in your sight. So if that's true, <clears throat> please show me now your ways that I may know you. Mo Moses, you're, you're speaking to God face to face and you're saying, I want to know you. Who could know God better than that? See, I could speak with you face to face and not know you. Just because you've heard from God, just because you've experienced something from God or seen his hand move, that doesn't mean you know him as you should. Are you out there today? Hallelujah. And then here's really my point. The Lord responded to what Moses said in verse 14 and said this, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. He's the God of rest. Now, on the one hand, I think what this means on the one hand is he's saying, I will personally lead you into the promised land and, and the people of Israel will take possession of their inheritance. They'll have a home. They'll have a place they can call their own and their journey through the wilderness will end. I think that's true. But I think there's another thought as well, that there is a rest and there is a refreshing, and there is a renewing in the presence of the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And here's the, here's the real interesting thing. My presence will go with you, and I'll give you rest. And again, Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The Hebrew word for presence means face. It's exactly what it means face. See, we talk about the presence of the Lord in, in Christian circles. Well, today we really felt the presence of the Lord. You know, the presence of God was so strong in that meeting. And I think, just a thought, you can just chew on this, you know, just, just consider this. <clears throat> I think in our minds, we tend to think that means that God just suddenly showed up. Like he was in the side room and he popped out and said, here I am. You know, somehow, you know, you know, like, like somebody opened a window and, and Holy Ghost fresh air just filled the room. And I'm not trying to sound sarcastic or something, but okay, I, I suppose that that's, that's true. But we know that God is always present everywhere. The Hebrew word for presence means face. See, I could be in this room, I'm in the same place with you are, and not look at you. The rest that our hearts crave is when he turns his face toward you. Anybody here today? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So again, we read Romans chapter 5 verse 1. Through faith in Christ, we have right standing with the Father. We are righteous through faith in the gospel. What does that mean? It means the door is open. 
It means we are welcome. We are accepted. But then the next verse is Romans chapter 5, verse 2, says this, through him, through Christ, we have also obtained access. Access. We have peace. We also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. In other words, I think what he's saying is he knows you by name and you have found favor in his sight. The door is open, but you have to walk through it. You have a standing invitation with the Father, but you have to respond. Heaven is waiting for your RSVP. Are you out there today? Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Amen. The veil is torn, but now you have to come boldly into the holy place. Hallelujah. Glory to God. That's when we experience the fullness of his rest. That's when we experience the fullness of his rest. So God is a God of rest. He rested on the seventh day from all his work, which seems funny to us. He worked six days and he rested on the seventh. People in Nagaland rest six days and then just work on one day. No? Okay. <laughs> and then he commanded Israel to do likewise. No work was permitted on the Sabbath, the seventh day. And this law was strictly enforced. In fact, one day they found a fellow gathering sticks, presumably to make a fire, I suppose, to cook his meal, I don't know, to heat his tent. They, on the Sabbath day, they found this guy collecting sticks and they stoned him to death. Whoa. Everybody say, thank God we're not under the law. Can you imagine if people skipped church and we said, all right, praise God. Gather, everybody take one rock in your hand. Let's all go by auto rickshaw to his house. <laughs> Ooh, hallelujah. That's brutal. Come on, that's brutal. And then think about this. Honoring the Sabbath is one of the Ten Commandments. I mean, if you were making 10 rules to live by, would that be one of them? I bet a lot of people wouldn't even think about that. And here's something else. Those commandments, I know we're not under the law, but I'll get to that in a second. But those commandments, if you, if you pay attention, they are listed in their order of importance. The first commandment is the most important one. And down the line, honoring the Sabbath is number four. In fact, it precedes other commandments against murder, adultery, stealing, lying, which most of us would consider much more serious things. Why is that? The first four commandments, I know we're not under the law. Don't have a, don't have a hernia. Just hang on tight, okay? The first four commandments dealt with their interaction with God. The next six dealt with 
man. That's why your attitude towards God is more important than your conduct toward men. Because if your attitude toward God is wrong, your conduct toward others will definitely be wrong eventually. Hallelujah. Then, then go a little further. In the book of Isaiah, there's a whole chapter, or, or basically almost a chapter, chapter 58. And God promised the Israelites, I will guide you and I will satisfy your desires. And he promised to rebuild the ruined places, recover, renew, rebuild. Instead of a wasteland, a barren desert, he, he, he said their lives would be like a well-watered garden. I bet as I'm saying that, a lot of people in this room are thinking, I, I, that's what I need. That's, that's something that, I, that, that speaks to me. That's something I crave. But see, there was a condition to that promise. There was a prerequisite, Isaiah 58 and verse 13. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you'll have it. What? You know, he, notice he didn't say stop drinking, stop smoking, stop fooling around. I mean, you know, that's what you might think of. He said, no, stop doing your own thing on my day. That's interesting, isn't it? So the thought that keeps coming to me is, why is this so important? I mean, because in my mind, it's not that big a deal, actually. Why is this such a big deal to God? Well, in Mark 2.27, Jesus said that man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. And what he means is, it was created, it was designed for our benefit. Not, not for God's benefit, it's for our good, for our benefit. See, we need, sure, sure, we need a day to rest. That, that, that's, that's natural, that makes sense. But more importantly, we need a day to rest in God's presence. We need a time we push everything else away and we seek his face. In other words, in your home, there needs to be a tent of meeting. Hallelujah, figuratively speaking. Hallelujah. Amen. Glory to God. We're not under the law. I know that. We're under grace. We're not going to stone anybody today. We, we, we talked about it and decided against it. Only because we don't have big enough stones nearby and the price of rocks is going up so ridiculously, we thought it would be a waste. <laughs> and the Bible tells me in the New Testament that these things, including the Sabbath, are a shadow of the good things to come. They're pointing us to the reality that is Christ. He is the rest 
But having said that, in a, in a few minutes I have left, having said that, I do think there's a principle that we have dismissed and overlooked. And that is this. If we tithe our money, we give a tenth of our income to God and expect him to bless it, why don't we tithe our time? Amen. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, John the Apostle said this. Again, remember, my presence, my face will shine on you. And that's where you'll find rest. So John said in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. He's speaking of the first day of the week, which we commonly call Sunday, because from the very beginning, those early believers gathered together on the first day of the week. And notice this, he calls this the Lord's day. I've heard people try to explain this away, but I don't buy that. It means exactly what it says. I was in the spirit on what day? Sunday, you know? Church day, actually he says the Lord's day. Not my day, the Lord's day. Remember, the tithe is holy. The tithe is, belongs to the Lord. Well, here's a day that belongs to the Lord. It's not, it's not picnic by the river day. It's not visit your relatives day. It's not sport day. He says it's the Lord's day. Hallelujah. Amen. Now, see, for the world, it's just another day. But you're not of this world. Amen. Praise the Lord. I feel that much is lost because we do not spend enough time seeking his face. Then John heard a voice from heaven. He turned and he saw the Lord. Later, the Lord said, come up here. I have things to show you, things regarding future events. Jesus said when the Holy Spirit comes, he will show you things to come. Is it possible that God needs your presence more than you need his because there are things he has to impart to you? There are things he has to show you for the plan of God to be fulfilled, but that won't happen as long as you're doing your own thing, distracted and filling your life with mindless amusements when you know the door to heaven was opened by the blood of Jesus, but you're too lazy to walk through that door. Amen. Hallelujah. Much is lost because we don't wait in his presence. So our restlessness reveals a lack of time in his presence. And I'll say this for myself. I know that's true. I, I, I can see that in myself. Those times when I've been, oh, I don't know, busy with so many things here and there. And, you know, the world can come crashing on your head with obligations, responsibilities. And those weeks were, you know, I always pray, I always read my Bible, but it was just sort of done hurriedly. You know, I, I saw things, I saw myself losing my appetite for the things of God. But those times where I just pressed in, it takes a little discipline, doesn't it? And I'm just 
you know, praying and I'm just reading my Bible like I'm supposed to do. And I was expecting one thing and suddenly God began to speak to me about other things, about my life, ministry, things like that, marriage, family. Hallelujah. See, pressing into his presence is never a waste of time. Never a waste of time. So let me close up. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, and I'll give you rest. But there are many unsettled, uneasy, edgy believers. They have peace with God, but there's anxiety, stress, worry, in their minds. So in closing, I'll just read one more verse, the next verse, verse 29. He's not through talking. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you, you will find rest for your souls. It's a strange verse. We don't generally live in an agrarian society. I don't. A yoke is a harness for a pair of animals. A pair. A yoke is always two. Like two oxen, etc. To maybe pull a plow or to pull a cart. So what he's saying is this. You and Jesus must do life together. See, an, a, a pair that, of animals that are yoked together, one can't go this way and one the other, the other way. They have to go the same way. They're connected to each other. They're bound to each other. He's saying, he's saying you and I, Jesus is saying you and I, we're connected. Now let's do life together. Hallelujah. And, and, and living yoked to Christ is not hard. Because it sounds intimidating. It sounds frightening. It sounds like something like a, like a kind of thing that you maybe ought to just skip that. But he said, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. See, living unyoked to Christ, that's hard. Doing your own thing reaping the whirlwind and then asking God to fix all of the problems you've created with your own disobedience. That's not the way to live. And then he says this, I gave rest to your heart when you believe the gospel. If you will walk with me, you'll have the same rest in your mind, in your soul, in your emotions. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We should be restful people. There should be just an atmosphere of rest. Isn't it funny that, has this happened? You're, you sleep and sleep and sleep and sleep and you wake up still like tired and, and, you, and you go on vacation. Get a break from this. And then when you come back, you need a vacation from your vacation. Vacation. 
There is a rest for the weary. There is a rest for the uneasy. There is a rest for the troubled. It's in the presence of the Lord.